Well, good morning, church. It's good to see so many of you. Either it's so hot outside that you want to just be in air conditioned or you're here to worship Jesus. I hope it's the latter. Um, so we're going to dive right in. So what's going on in this passage? We're going to start right off here um, talking about what Melissa just read for us um, before we get into the meat of the message. So here we find ourselves on this journey uh, that Jesus is taking into Jerusalem, ultimately to the cross. And we'll basically be spending the rest of our time in Matthew uh, leading up to Easter next year on this journey that Christ is taking to the cross. Um, Jesus begins by telling his disciples for a third time what is going to happen to him very soon. Uh, the first time, if you remember, in Matthew 16, uh, like it feels like eternity ago, uh, Jesus tells um, what's to come, and Peter um, is despondent. He's, he's basically like, no way, Jesus, this isn't going to happen to you. And Jesus has to rebuke Peter and has to tell Satan uh, to get behind him. And then just one chapter later, uh, the disciples are told again, uh, and this time with a little more detail, and the disciples, all of them are greatly distressed at this news that they hear Jesus shares. And we can see how this is moving from just being like just Peter who is solely um, worked up over this to all of the disciples now being concerned about this news that Jesus is sharing with them. And then we skip ahead to the uh, three chapters to where we are today in, in Matthew 20. And we see Jesus telling them again what is about to happen. Each time, Jesus gives the disciples and us a little more of the details, both in the timing and of the nature of things that is to come. And even after being told three times of his impending death and having each of those times give more and more of the details of what's to come, it would now appear that the disciples have had enough. They're like, all right, Jesus, we've heard you two times. Enough is enough. Can we get on to some other things? Let's, let's talk about things that, that have to do with us. So we, we heard you say something about a kingdom. Let's talk about that. So now we get to the part of the sons of Zebedee, right? They've just heard multiple times, the disciples have heard multiple times that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And yet we come to this part where the mother of James and John come and they approach Jesus. They even kneel at his feet and she, she talks to Jesus about this need for her sons to be at his right and his left side. And, and you'll notice in, in multiple passages, probably in the ESV that we do, um, it shows that there's like a title before um, this happens. And it says, a mother's request. And it seems like pleasant. Mother's request to have her son sit at the right and left side in his kingdom. Which, which um, is kind of like James and John bringing their mommy into the, uh, the picture here. And uh, they just can't speak for themselves. And we clearly see that James and John have no idea what they are asking of Jesus, what, what the mother is asking of Jesus. Even after being told three times that he's about to be killed, they still think that they can drink the cup of suff suffering and death that he's about to partake of. But they say that they can do it. Wouldn't you all agree that we're all a little bit like James and John, right? That Jesus... So you're going to be killed, and you're going to rise from the dead. But when you're done with that, right, when you're done with the cross business, when you're done doing those things, am I going to be okay? Is there going to be a special place 
for me? Am I not going to have to suffer the way that you suffer? See, even the disciples of Jesus in that time had a me mentality. They have been with the Lord and the Savior for all of this time, but yet they still are concerned about themselves. Then hearing after what the brothers had asked, the other disciples were all riled up. The other ten hear this news, and and I know it doesn't say it here in the passage, but I can imagine that part of their annoyance at what James and John had asked might have been because they got beat to the punch, right? They got beat to the point of being able to ask Jesus for that special place uh, at his side. And if we are more universal than we are unique, which I believe we are, and we put ourselves in the shoes of the disciples, we would have been the ones who wanted to be at Christ right or left. We would have wanted to be assured that everything was going to be okay, that even though Christ would suffer, somehow we would be able to avoid that suffering as well. And finally, we get to the end of this chapter, and Jesus takes time to teach them a very important lesson. And this is where we get to the crux of the matter and where we'll spend the majority of our time here um, this morning. Jesus calls them in, and he kind of huddles them up like a coach would do. And he begins to share with them the game plan for their lives. He gathers them in and he says this, and this is, this is my translation. He says, here's what, here's what I'm going to need you to do. You know those people of power and prestige, the ones that, that hold things over and they think that they're better than everyone else? That's not going to be you. That's not going to be what you do. You have to be better than that. And in order to do that, you need to be a servant. The greatest among you must also be their servant. And I'm not just going to say these things and say some sort of lip service, but I will lead for you an example And here are Jesus' words again at the end of that passage. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So here's the main idea for this passage today. To be great in the kingdom of God, not only must you be a servant, but you also must be served by Jesus. And here's where we're going to go with that passage, with that main idea. The remedy for being a self-focused person, which is what we see playing out here in this passage, there's two pieces to this. First, there's a call to serve, and then there's a call to be served. And that does sound kind of contradictory, but you're not to be served by others, but to be served by Jesus. Let's pray, uh, and then we'll, we'll dive into this passage this morning. Father, thank you for your word and that everything in your word, we can, we can take something away and apply it into our lives. That it's not just something that was written long ago that has no proper place in this time, in this place, but God, you have given us your words. Let us take your words seriously so that we might be changed, that we might be informed, that we might be better disciples of Jesus. Father, allow our hearts to receive your words this morning. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So first, a call to serve. So we all love to be served, right? There's, I don't think there's a time where you would actually refuse someone serving you. 
And not only do we love being served, but we want to be served without asking, right? We just want it to naturally happen. We want to have um, it done with love and with a grateful and joyful attitude and heart. We want to be served quickly. We also want to feel guilty when we're being served, right? We just want to let that all happen and, and feel good about. But how many of us actually love to serve? In verses 26 and 27, Jesus says, it shall not be so among you, talking about those who act superior and loitered over others. But, whatever, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. So what is, what is Jesus saying here? He's saying that you are great in God's kingdom, not based on how many people you got to serve you, but rather how many people you served. How many did you serve? Greatness in the kingdom of God is not measured by what you have right here, right now, but rather what you are willing to lay down right here and right now. If that is the definition of great, if that is what greatness in the kingdom of God looks like, let me ask you, church, are you great? If that is how greatness is measured to be into the kingdom of God, in God's eyes, are you great? You see, we all land in two categories as people. We are either seeking worldly greatness chasing after the fame, the power, the prestige here, or we are focused on, on kingdom greatness, serving and putting others before ourselves. But we all have to ask ourselves at some point, which category do we find ourselves in? Worldly greatness or kingdom greatness? For some of us, this is a hard thing to wrestle with. We like what we have we enjoy all of the things that we have in this world. We enjoy our comfort and our things. We don't like to sacrifice. We don't like to be without. We like those creature comforts. But Jesus did not call us to a life of ease and contentment. He called us to something far, far greater. In John 16, we read, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And then in 1 Peter 4, it says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And when we look at that earlier verse, we see James ask, or Jesus asking James and John if they were able to drink the cup that he was about to drink. And what is that cup? We kind of already referred to it, but it is the cup of suffering and death, that, that humility, that horror that he would experience. And he tells them that they will drink of that cup. And just like all of us, we will, for those that are following after him, we will drink and partake of that cup because, because servanthood comes at a cost. You can't serve someone without it costing you something. When the scripture tells us to bear one, another, one another's burdens, there's, there's only one way that we can do that, by taking on some of their suffering. It spills over from their life into us. And if, if we are chasing after Christ, 
if we call ourselves followers of Jesus, there will be things we have to sacrifice. There will be ways that we have to suffer. And if, if you don't feel that, if that is not pressing in your life, then you have to ask yourself, how closely are you following the Savior? If you're not suffering and you're not sacrificing, how closely are you following after the Savior? In, in, John, in 1 John it says, by this we know love, that he, being Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But, but, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? So what are the areas in your life that you find yourself being selfish with your time, with your resources, with your talents? And I want to challenge you to really ask yourself that hard question. That it's not something that you pass over right now, that you somehow say, yeah, I, I give time and I, give, I serve here and there. But I, I want you to wrestle with that this week. I want you to, to spend time looking at the priorities in your life that say, am I true, am I a true servant of Jesus? And can I be real for a second, for, for just a millisecond, right? Hamilton, you fans. <laughs> the place where our serving should be the most obvious, the most obvious place that we should see serving is right here in our church, right? The church is the place where we should be serving the most obviously. When there is a need, whether that be in Terra Kids or Terra Youth or um, tearing down or setting up things or even with uh, the, the Freer Park cleanup or opportunities here with the Boys and Girls Club or with the Salvation Army, whatever that would look like, we as the church should be the ones that have to turn away people because there are so many people needing or wanting to serve. But when you hear that multiple offer for, hey, we need, we need volunteers and Terra Kids or we need volunteers here or that, if it's happening multiple times, one would have to ask themselves why. Why is that happening? What are we doing with our time and our talents and our resources? Because we all know that we should serve, that's not the problem. The problem isn't that we know that we should serve. The problem is, is that we don't want to serve. We don't want to be inconvenienced. When we should be others-focused, we spend so much more time being me-focused. And that's not so different from the disciples. It was a matter of the heart. Like, what is going on in their heart? What is going on in our hearts that causes us not to serve? Philippians 2 says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And the flip side of this coin, when it comes to serving, 
is that we can easily fool ourselves in, into feeling good about ourselves when we serve. Thinking, look at me, look at the, the wonderful things that I'm doing, or, or just that feeling you have in your heart or your stomach or your mind when you have done something good that maybe you did sacrifice a little bit. Or maybe you've gone to the place where you are continually doing that to get like, I don't know, maybe it's called a serving high. That you're just constantly uh, wanting to serve so that you continually feel good about yourself. And, and maybe you're hoping that God will say at some point, here's a seat at my right or my left. But we can't earn our salvation. We can't earn our way into heaven. And we see in Ephesians 2 that for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So we must not be people who, who serve and think that this is what gets us into heaven. Christ must be our example. And in John, when he had washed their feet and he had put on his clothes and he had come to the place where he was, he said to them, do you, do you understand what I have done? to you. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do, just as I have done to you. So Christ is our example here to follow, but we also must be willing to be served by the King. In order to be a servant of the king and for the king, we must be served by the king. This is what we desperately need. And this is our second point. First, we had a call to serve and now a call to be served, not by people, but by Jesus. We look again at verses 26 through 28, and it says, But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And if we stopped at verse 27, and if that is all we had, and there was nothing else, there would be no gospel message. There would be no message of Christianity it would be just like the rest of the religions and rest of the self-help programs that are out there. Because we know at the core of who we are that we should care about others, that we should be kind. We don't look at, at others who, who live in a manner that are mean towards other people or, or are selfish in their behavior. And, and we think, yep, that's the way that we should live. That's right, right? We see this everywhere we look but we find ourselves coming up short every time. When we think we know what we are to do and what we should do, it's not enough for us to know and to try. We will always fail because we can't do it on our own. We don't have it in us. We just can't be a better person or do the better thing. What we need so desperately is someone who can. Someone who can forgive our sins, we are not who we need to be, and we do not do what we should do. That's why we need Jesus. That's why we need to be served 
by Jesus. So being served by Jesus is where things radically change in comparison to the, all the religions that we see. Every other religion can say, if you, you can just do it. There's, there's something in you. You can be kind. You can serve more, and you can earn it. But Jesus says the opposite. Jesus says you can't do it on your own. I can and will do it for you. I came to serve and pay the ransom for your souls. Verse 28 is where Jesus changes everything and he flips the script on what the world would say. Even as the Son of Man came to be served, he came not to be served but to serve and to give a life as a ransom for many. Jesus doesn't say, serve me, and I'll make sure you have a place with me. Instead, instead, he paid the ultimate sacrifice and laid down his life. The only person in all of history that had a life to lay down was Jesus. One that was sinless, that was spotless, that was without blemish or stain, and he did it for you, and he did it for me. But why? Why did Jesus do that? So that you and I could serve him more, that we could do things for him? No. So he could serve us by giving us what we could never get on our own. Redemption. Restoration, salvation, life everlasting. If we have in Jesus a God who is willing to lay down his life for us, do we not also have in him a God who is willing to help us and to serve us when we need him? See, Jesus didn't come to be served by you. So church, what have you been doing? How have you been spending your time? Are you spending it serving Jesus? Or are you letting Jesus serve you? Maybe instead of spending all of our time or the majority of our time doing things for Jesus, we should practice being in the presence of Jesus. I know it can sound contradictory to the first part, but if we are constantly doing things for Jesus and you're trying to do more things, more good things for Jesus, we miss the fact that Jesus didn't come to be served by you, but he came to serve you and lay down his life for you. In Acts 17, Paul writes, the, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Mm. A God who does not need anything from us is a God that we truly need. A God who offers to serve us instead of being served by us. And this is either the best news or the worst news for us. 
It's the, best, it's the worst news for those who view themselves as self-sufficient. Those who want to do things in order to work their way into heaven, to have the power and the prestige of this world, this is not good news for them. But it's the best news for those of us who say, I've got nothing. I need you, Jesus, because I am a broken, sinful man. I can't do it alone. So how do you hear this news today? Do you see this as the best news? Or do you see this as the worst news for you? <clears throat> I'm going to read a quote. It'll be up here by Charles Spurgeon that really drives this point home. <clears throat> he had nothing whatever to gain by it. Gain? How could the infinite God gain? Splendor? Behold the stars, far away they glitter beyond all mortal count. Servants? Does he need servants? Behold angels in their squadrons, 20,000, even thousands of angels are the chariots of the Almighty. Honor? No. The trumpet of fame forever proclaims him King of kings and Lord of lords. Who can add to the splendor of that diadem that makes sun and moon grow pale by comparison? Who can add to the riches of the wealth of him who has all things at his disposal? He comes then not to be served, but to serve. I want to spend our last few moments today looking at some practical ways to take this home with you into your everyday life. Because what is the point of hearing God's word if we are not changed by God's word? If we are challenged, but it does not change us, what good is it? Why did we gather here today? <clears throat> when we have in Jesus a God who doesn't demand that we, serve, we first serve him, but in him we find a savior who first offers to serve us and lay down his life for us, then in what ways does this transform us? How are we changed by this? What does a truth like this produce in our lives? It produces two things. First, it produces a humility of heart. We begin to recognize that we don't belong to ourselves. That my life is not my own, that my money is not mine, my marriage is not mine, my time is not mine, and my talents are not mine. All that we have is his. That changes the way you do life. It doesn't demand better treatment from the world than what Jesus got. We are not entitled to anything. Dennis just shared last week that God does not owe you anything. The world doesn't owe you anything. Two passages in, in John and in Isaiah says, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. And famously in Isaiah it says, he was despised and rejected by men 
a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Second and lastly, this knowledge produces in us joyful service. When we see in Hebrews that for the joy set before him, Jesus, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. If Jesus was joyful in enduring the cross for us, shouldn't we be joyful in, the, in, in our obedience to him? Because it changes our mentality from being people who say, I, I have to serve people, and it changes us to be, I get to serve people. So first it produces humility of heart. And it moves us to a place of joyful service. So as the band comes up, let me uh, ask you this final question as you move into a time of worship and singing and communion. What are you going to do with all the ways that Jesus is serving you? Are we going to continue to live in a way that says, I'm going to serve in order to feel good about myself, and I know that I can do this on my own. I don't really need Jesus. Or are you going to see this as an opportunity to say, I have nothing. I can't give you anything. So, so serve me, Jesus. First, allow the Savior to serve you. Then, and only then, go and serve others for the Savior. So as a church, go and make more and better disciples of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus and how his example of how he served can be the way that it informs us and the way that it changes us and the way that it moves us to being people that are grateful and humble and joyful in the ways that we serve. God, let us not be just all about serving. Let us be about being served by Jesus. Let us be about spending time with Jesus so that we are informed people as we go and serve people for Jesus. Father, thank you for the cross. Thank you for the the price that was paid on our behalf, that Jesus laid his life down as a ransom for many. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.